Hi, I'm Pastor Jeremy, and welcome to the preaching ministry of Nest Baptist, where we seek to equip people to love God and love others. So whether you are a longtime follower of Jesus, or you're exploring what faith in Him might look like, we're glad you're here. It is our prayer that through our sermons, you might better understand who God is, what He has done for you, and what that means for your life. May all of this lead to the worship of God and be for His glory. Morning, everyone. Today I'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 21. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thanks, Noah. Henry. I do that every so often, <laughs> as you've probably noticed. Isn't it great hearing people's testimonies? It's really wonderful. I think that, like, you know, we live in a society where we wonder, like, is God still at work? Where's all, you know, the people who are, uh, who are God's doing work in their lives and things like that? And to be able to come together and to hear testimonies of, uh, look at all these people who God has been deeply at work in their life is so encouraging. And it's encouraging for us to be able to hear and it's also encouraging for them to be able to tell you about that. And so how exciting to be able to celebrate on a morning like this. And so uh, I thank you, all of you who shared your testimony this morning. It's not easy. And standing up in front of a bunch of people and talking about your life and what God's been doing in your life is uh, not an easy thing to do, but it is an important thing. And, and I think it does bear good fruit. So today's passage uh, begins in verse 15, as we just heard read. But in reality, you know, this is a bit of an overflow from verse 14 uh, in this Ephesians chapter 5 passage that said, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Well, how do we do this? How is this possible? And I really believe that that's what verses 15 and, and following begin to inform us of. What does it mean to wake up? I have to make a confession. I almost called this sermon, Get Woke, but that just didn't seem right. Probably like cringy at its best and uh, maybe even worse. Uh, so we spared you from that, so I shouldn't have even said it. But we could have also called it Paul's Guide to Getting Red-Pilled. You know, any Matrix fans out there? That's actually a profound thought. It's pretty accurate, really, to what we're talking about in many ways, but that, too, carries a lot of different modern interpretations. Do you take the blue pill and you stay in your comfortable world of ordinary reality of the world that is around you that is yet comfortable, or do you take the red pill and get your eyes open to the true reality that's actually happening? But the catch is, of course, is that the red pill changes everything. It may be unsettling, and it will be life-changing. That's what we have here. Awake, O sleeper. You know, this morning, let's consider that. You know, what does it take for us to wake up to the true reality that we find ourselves in? And we're going to do that this morning in three ways. 
What does it mean to wake up? It means maximizing your time. It means being filled with the Holy Spirit. And it means submitting to one another. So let's tackle those in that order. Maximizing our time. And this is what it said. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of your time, because the days are evil. How do you use your time? Are you making the best of it? You're living the Christian life, awakening from our slumber. It means that we have to seriously consider time. Because time is a commodity, right? I mean, I was reading a great article about this this past week. I'm about halfway through, and I hope to finish it, if I can find the time. Do you make the best use of your time? You know, if you walk in wisdom, you will. If you are unwise, it says, you will not. And that's what verse 17 tells us. Because time is a commodity. We only have so much of it, and we have no idea what that allotted amount is going to be. Phil Taves was told that he had four months, and he had one week. Our friend in Regina who just died was told he had three months, and he ended up having 18. You know, James tells us that our lives are like a vapor. They're like a mist. And so it's really important that we consider this. So what are you doing with your time? Are you living wise? Or are you living unwise? You know, I really can't say that the rise of technology has helped us out a whole lot in this department. I know people who spend eight hours a day on nothingness, online nothingness, things with no redeeming value. But there's the key. That's the key. You see this term, making the best use of, when it says make the best use of your time? It's actually the Greek word exagorazo, and it means to redeem or to purchase. What this means, I would say, is that time is rapidly moving along, and as time rapidly moves along, it actually trends towards evil. It tends towards decay and destruction, unless something is intentionally done. See, that's the thing. Something can be intentionally done about it, but if you do nothing about it, it has a trajectory unless you wake up and you redeem it. Well, what do I mean? Well, everything in life trends towards decay. It's a sobering thought, but I think it's pretty true. You don't weed your garden for a few weeks. What happens? The weeds will grow and everything that is good will die. Don't change your oil in your car. Don't ever watch it. The decay starts to come upon it. Don't exercise, and your body and your health will rapidly deteriorate. It's really a passive destruction of what God has given you as a gift, and it will ruin you. It'll cut your life short, and it will diminish the quality of whatever life you have left if you do nothing about it. Why? Because everything moves towards degeneration and evil if we do not attend to it. And don't attend to your interior life. And that will mean personal decline, and it bears eternal consequences. What's happening in our internal life, the interior? You have a limited, a limited quality of time, and you must redeem it. you got to take it, and you got to redeem it. And if you will be wise, 
This is how you will live. Make the very best use of it. And the Bible tells us that we got to kind of wake up to that fact and to realize that that is the reality. These things need to be attended to. We need to think about them, consider them. How are we doing in this area? And does something need to be done? And there's a few things to note here when we talk about this. The first is that it's going to be a challenge. And that's what it, I think another meaning of what it says. It says the days are evil. That means that redeeming your time is going to be a challenge. It's not going to come easy because it's going to be the harder thing for you to do. The easy thing for you to do will be to lay back and to not worry about it, not consider it, and just continue to go on. So it's going to be a challenge because the days are evil. Everything is going to work against you in doing this. That's why we all need discipline. We need to fight against this. We need to guard against it. We need to discipline our lives in this area. We must discipline ourselves. Our natural tendency is really just kind of put things off. Forget about it for a while. Do the things that we want to do. There's a lot of distractions around us that that is easily possible. Don't even think about it. There's so many other things coming on around me. I don't have time for it right now. But those inner natural desires, they tend to come out when we do that. And those are the international desires that our world says should be allowed to come out unabated. If it's on the interior, if it's natural, it's good, and it just needs to be allowed to come out. No. The days are evil, and that will be the temptation. See, another implication is that there's all kinds of evil things around us to occupy our time with. And I'm not going to get into all of that here this morning, but be aware that things that are not good for you are vying for your attention and for you to waste your time on. What are those things that are around you that are vying for your attention, that are grabbing a hold of you, that you were looking at and you're saying, those things look attractive and I want to move towards it. And maybe it's the easy thing to move towards it. What are those things? You ever stop to ponder? We are told that the wise will ponder what that is and will do something about it. Well, how then do we avoid this? What do we do about this? We are told, next, understand God's will. This is what it says in, in verse um, 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. If we want to be wise with our time to use it well, we've got to understand God's will. Now, when Paul uses that word here, we often think about, like, what is like God's will? What does that mean, and how can I ever discover it? You see, I think what Paul is talking about here is not God's secret, hidden will that you have to enter into this like month-long retreat of solitude to try to figure it out. No, this is God's revealed will. There are many things that God has revealed to you in His will that we are called to do. It's all over His Word. Knowing the will of God is living in obedience to what God has plainly revealed to us. It really is that simple in what is being told here. But it's not easy. Simple, not easy, right? Passages like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 5, it says this. It says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Your sanctification is the will of God. It says that you abstain from sexual immorality. We talked about that two weeks ago. That each one of you knows how to control their own body in holiness and honor. So that's one thing. That's the will of God. Not, like it's, it's simple to see and to understand, not easy to do. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, it says this, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. We talked about that two weeks ago as well. Interesting 
Paul's bringing up these recurring themes. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. To rejoice, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks. That's also God's will. You see, these things are all through His Word. To redeem time, to make the best use of our time, we've got to know those things. Let's dig into them, understand them, and walk in obedience to them. You know, it's simply living in obedience to how God has instructed you. But it's even more than that. Because wisdom is attached to it in verse 15. God's will, and then wisdom becomes attached to it as well. And what that means is that wisdom, it's not only knowing the obvious do's and don'ts, it's not just about the moral life of knowing the do's and don'ts and living by the do's and don'ts that are very obvious. It's about knowing what you do and what I would say are the 80% of life situations to which the obvious moral rules are silent. What do you do in the 80% of your life where the obvious moral rules are silent? How do you decide what to do? Well, that's the wisdom of the Bible. That's what we're called to knowing. It's not just knowing the rules. It's knowing how to apply them in the life situations that you find yourselves in. So you understand the will of God, what He has called you to, but it's not always super obvious, how do I apply those things? That's wisdom, and that's the Holy Spirit that guides us into these kinds of truths. That's what Proverbs is. There's some obvious things in Proverbs, but we're not exactly told how do those things relate to every single situation in life. That's where the wisdom kicks in. And that's what's all across wisdom literature. It's what it's trying to get across to us. For example, you know you apply for a bunch of jobs, and there's two that are offered to you. Which one do you take? How do you know? You're going to need wisdom to figure that out. You might think about how it'll affect your family. You might think, how productive is this work going to be? You might think, how ethical is the employer? And on and on and on. There's all these things that you're going to have to think through. You have to use wisdom. You'll need wisdom in those kinds of situations. And I'd say it's the 80% of situations you find yourself in where the answer is not always obvious. That's how you redeem your time. You understand God's will, realizing that it's going to be a challenge, but we enter into it and we engage in this. You'll need to know God's laws and commands in doing this, but you'll also need to know how to apply them. But you have to be willing to do it, to live by it. And if you're awakened to the reality of its importance, then you will be. This past week, I was listening to a conversation with Dr. John Lennox, who's a, a brilliant mathematician from Oxford. He's also a theologian and a philosopher. And he's an amazing man who has debated all of the top atheists, like Dawkins and Hitchens, like all of these guys. And he has destroyed them all with his reasoning and with his truth. And I love the clickbait for his videos. Christopher Hitchens tries to debate John Lennox and instantly regrets it. You know, <laughs> have you ever seen those kind of things? Like, whoa, what is that? Must be amazing. <laughs> Got to find out what that's all about. But it's really kind of ironic because this guy is like the kindest, gentlest man that you will ever listen to. He's kind of like the ultimate grandfather figure. And uh, he had a great quote from one of his debates with Dawkins where he said to them, and Dawkins is talking about atheism, and he says, and, uh, and Lennox says to him, I also don't believe in the God that you believe in. And I thought, oh, that's, a, that's a great quote. Like, he's kind of bringing things back to, like, what is our basic understanding of the dimensions of what we're even talking about? And anyways, that's just a side note. He was talking about truth. That's what we're getting at. 
truth. And he quoted famous atheists and one of the progenitors of what is kind of known as the new atheist movement, if you're familiar with that, Aldous, Ho um, Aldous Huxley. Aldous? Aldous Huxley. Sorry, getting my, my, const my constables mixed up there. <laughs> and uh, Aldous Huxley, he said something uh, to the effect of, I don't want there to be a God, for if there is a God, I have a sneaking suspicion that He has something to say to me, and the first thing that He has to say to me may not be something that I want to hear. It's kind of interesting. It kind of gets it down to its basic principles, right? What is it going to mean if God really does exist, if He really has created us, then maybe He has a plan for us. Maybe He has the message for us. And maybe that thing is something that I don't want to hear. Am I going to want to know about that? It's very honest, actually. But don't be like that. Because chances are you might be. You might be avoiding God because you may not like what He has to say about how you're living or how you're thinking and what you're doing. Wake up, O sleeper, is what we are called to. You see, if you're going to live the awakened life, which is the life the church is called to, then we must redeem the time that we have. We must maximize it by understanding and living out God's will for us. It's going to be a challenge, but we must never give up. Well, what do we have in way of resources in order to do this? This is verse 18. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. It says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So the passage ends off by informing us that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what does the Spirit produce? When we think of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit produces joy. And so Paul contrasts two things, being drunk and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Why would he do this? Why would he contrast these two things? But he's saying that being filled with the Spirit is getting the thing that people get drunk to get. You see, there's a reason that people drink too much. They're looking for something. They're looking for some relief, looking for some pleasure, they're looking for some escape. It's joy. You know, the joy that's underneath these things. I have a right to joy and I want to find it. It does this temporarily though because it's a depressant. And not that it depresses you, but it's a chemical that depresses a part of your brain. That part of your brain that is responsible for your self-control. And we've talked a lot about self-control already this morning and how difficult self-control is. And if you no longer had self-control, what would you do? If you no longer had any self-control, it probably wouldn't be good things. It would be those interior things that we work hard to keep down, to not let out. They would just all start coming out. Is that good? No. We work very hard to live in a way that requires self-control. All the right and the good things you do are as a result of self-control that you've had to exercise in your life. You remove that, and all the bad decisions just start to pile up. It's really obvious. It's easily seen. There's no question about it. You can't even argue against it. Things you wouldn't have otherwise done. You'll find yourself in a whole world of trouble. It changes your brain. You think it will bring you joy, but it's the number one cause of regret. It's the number one cause of crime of poor money management, of poverty, of broken relationships. The list goes on and on and on. For a very brief period of time, your brain forgets your problems. They're still there, but you forget them for a few hours, and then you regret it for days, for months, for maybe years. It slowly destroys you. Wake up. Don't do that. 
You see, the Spirit operates on the exact opposite principle, and that's why Paul contrasts these two things here. The Spirit doesn't make you less aware of your problems. He actually makes you more aware of your resources, and that's significant. The Holy Spirit doesn't make you less aware of your problems. He makes you more aware of your resources. You see, the Spirit takes all the truths of Jesus Christ and the things we know in our head, and He makes them real in our hearts. It puts everything into perspective. Suddenly, our troubles look different. They're manageable, and we have hope. Thereby, we have and find true joy. It's the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we are told here what that looks like. When the Holy Spirit comes in, when the Holy Spirit controls us, when the Spirit fills us, however you want to use this terminology, we are told that one of the outpourings of that is singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Always making music in your heart to the Lord. That's a filling of the Holy Spirit. That's an outflow and like a proving ground of the Holy Spirit. Now, this doesn't mean that life becomes a musical. You know, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to everybody. We don't have to go around saying, you know, how are you doing today, Noah? The Lord is with you. You know, that'd be kind of weird. Nobody would want to do that. Some of you might. I know people love musicals, and you'd love to walk around singing to each other. That would be a lot of fun, and you could do that. But I don't think that's exactly what we're being told is going on here. It's interesting that singing in Christian church has been happening since the early church times, right from the very beginning. It's not a new construct. And it was the Roman governor, Pliny. He actually wrote a famous letter in 112 AD, and he tells how the Christians, they met together early in the week, each week, and that they sang to one another. They actually sang to each other. Now, why are these songs described in three ways? Why are they psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? Well, we know from church history that the Christians would sing psalms together as a part of their worship gathering. Sometimes we even call the book of songs the, or the, the book of psalms the songbook of Jesus. It's the psalms that he would have sang as well. It's pretty incredible. And then there were the hymns, probably like we see in Revelation chapter 4. Hymns uh, being displayed and written out of, of the glories of heaven. That's Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. They're described as new songs. So they sang a new song to the Lord. And then there's the spiritual songs, which probably means some kind of spontaneous praise from the heart. They just were going to give praise to God from their heart. You know, like write a song about that or something. Because something deep happens when we sing. Something deep happens when we sing. And I know there's a reason why we all have favorite songs. There's a reason why we like singing psalm, songs from like when we were younger as well and from years gone past because they mean something to us and they have a way of touching inner parts of us that otherwise sometimes don't come to the forefront. You see, music has this way of elevating our souls, touching deep parts of us where we're reminded of the truths of God and we set them to a tune. And there's something about setting well-chosen words to a melody that causes us to raise our voices up and we feel it. Well, you know, it's like you drive down the street and you look over the car beside you and the person just singing at the top of their lungs. I love it when that happens. Uh, that is me sometimes, I admit it. But, you know, there's something. There's something joyful. Even if they're singing, you know, who knows? I'm not sure the lyrics of the song that they're singing, but there's something that's touching a part of them that's significant. And I would say that that's touching a part of us that God has created within us. It's not just there by chance, but God has created us. 
as musical people with melody. In the Reformation, Martin Luther brought hymn singing into the church. In the Wesleyan revival, Charles Wesley wrote 6,000 hymns. We live in an era now where people go into a songwriting career. It's become a bit of an industry and a commodity. Has that been a good thing for it or a negative thing? I don't know, but it's there. I come from a Christian Missionary Alliance background, and A.B. Simpson, who is kind of known as the Grand Poobah, I guess you might say, of the Christian Missionary Alliance, he used to write a hymn for every one of his sermons, and they would be sung at the conclusion of his preaching. It's wonderful when a church can compose these spiritual songs. And the thing we emphasize is that we are singing to one another. So this is an outflowing of the Spirit. So we actually are singing to one another. And that means that when we gather for worship and we sing, it's not personal devotion time. It's actually a time when we sing to each other. We remind each other of the timeless truths of God and His actions and His character and His glory. Because I need to be reminded of that. And you need to be reminded of that. And that's not just the worship team singing it to us. That really is us singing it to one another and reminding one another how good is the Lord. How beautiful is the gospel. How raised up is Jesus Christ. You know, when I, when I sing, well, it depends what my voice is like on the day. When I sing that to you, hopefully you're encouraged. When you sing it to me, I'm encouraged. And I often sit in the pews and sometimes like, the people who are sitting around me they don't always have like the best voice, but that doesn't matter. When I hear someone singing in joy and in enthusiasm, my heart is raised up, whether they're on key or not. Not that saying anybody that sits in these rows like behind me here is doing that, but you know what I mean. This is true. It's very, very encouraging. It would be great, actually, if we could look at each other while we were singing, and I think this is how the church would have definitely gathered. We sing in rows now, facing in one direction, uh, but I think to be able to see each other is significant. That's how it's meant to be done. You're encouraging me with these words, and I'm encouraging you. We've also taken out many of the songs that are self-focused. You know, there's a lot of songs that are written with I rather than we statements. And songs that include we and you as in God, those are the ones that we would say are preferable. We want to make up the bulk of our singing together. Not that there isn't a time for I songs as they would fit into what I would say is that spiritual song category. They're just not the bulk of what we do when we gather and as we sing as a congregation who is singing to one another. So that's a beautiful thing to be able to do and that is an outflowing of the Holy Spirit in our lives, being filled with the Spirit, singing these encouragements to one another. The second is like one that we referred to already. We already said that this is the will of God, is that we always give thanks in all things. That's verse 20. You see, the fullness of the Spirit calls us to radical spirit of gratitude. We thank God, even in the midst of difficulties, for everything that is consistent with God as a loving Heavenly Father. All that He has given us through Jesus Christ we want to remember those things, and we want to give thanks to God for them. How do we do it? I mean, testimonies. We just heard a bunch of people give testimony to that this morning. They were giving thanks to what God has done in their lives, that we can do this with one another. You see, the fullness of the Spirit means that we're no longer known for our grumbling, our complaining, and our negative spirit. And I know that this can happen in my own life, and I know if I spend too much time watching the news or or doing that online stuff I was talking about before, I know it affects my spirit, and suddenly I'm grumbling, I'm complaining, 
wondering what's going on in this world, what's happening, and why are these things happening? It shouldn't be this way. And you start getting into this like negative spirit just starts coming out. And we sometimes forget to give thanks. You know, who is God? What has He done? What are His promises? How has He acted faithfully from eternity past and into our future? All of these things, we have so much to give God thanks for. His plans are never thwarted. God will always accomplish what He sets out to accomplish. Make that the undergirding of who we are. Not the grumbling, not the complaining, not the negative spirit. And you know that when you meet someone who has that. I mean, you're all probably thinking of someone right now, maybe. When you meet that person, the person's always grumbling. They're always complaining. There's a negative spirit that's there. And that's not what we are to be known by. That's not what we are to be characterized by. And I know that puts a check in my own heart, and I need to consider that. How have I been faithful in that area or unfaithful in that area? This is not what we are to be known by, but rather known as people who give thanks in all times for all things that He has given us through Jesus. And this is our prayer life. You see, we give thanks in our prayer life. To be reminded of all we have in Jesus, it changes us. It changes the outlook on life, and it changes the attitude of our hearts as you exercise your ability in Jesus to always give thanks in all circumstances. Are you exercising that? That is a big part of redeeming time as a big part of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what we will be characterized by. It's the Spirit-filled life. And then there's another one. And this one seems almost, is this misplaced? Why is it here? Verse 21, is this really a part of the progression of what we're talking about? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the third way we live that awakened life as a Christian is that we submit to one another. That's interesting because it is the third way we are told about in this passage, but it's also an evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit from our last point. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Then you will lovingly and willingly submit to one another. Now, the interesting thing about this verse and this call to submit is that this is like kind of like the header. And um, you'll probably notice in in your translation of your Bible, that it has it is the uh, like the last sentence in that paragraph, and then we start in a new paragraph right after that also talks about submission. So it's interesting where we play. Obviously, these paragraphs were not there in the original manuscripts; these are constructed. But I, I think they I think they have it right in this uh, instance of where it is being located. Because this is kind of like the header of where we're going. It's an outflowing of what we've talked about, but it's also going to be a header into the next things that are going to be talked about as well. It's like the general call. And then Paul's going to go into the specifics in the following sections. Because here we hear that submission is an evidence and an outpouring of the Spirit-filled life. And then we're going to go into detail about that submission in our marriages, Submission in our relationship to our parents, and then submission in the workplace. And that's going to be our next three sermons, if you're interested. Hopefully you'll stick around. But here we are first told to submit to one another in the church. So we're given this general call that we are called to submit to one another. Why? Well, it says we do this because it comes out and it flows out of our reverence for Christ. That's where submission comes from. Did you know that Christ lived a life of submission? It's funny that we have negative connotations of submission. We see submission and we think, I would never do that. You know, what a terrible thing to even suggest, that I would submit to somebody else. 
You imagine telling our world right now that submission is good and necessary. That seems to be a very opposite message of what we typically hear. I think you'd probably get ridiculed very quickly. Well, if you think submission is a bad word, consider the fact that Jesus lived his life in submission to the Father. Jesus' entire life was lived in submission. Not my will, but yours be done, he said. Into your hands I commit my spirit, are the words of Jesus. You see, being baptized, Jesus said that it was fitting for him to be baptized to fulfill God's plan of righteousness. He was submitting to the Father, and God said to him, Here is my Son, who I love, I am well pleased with him. Jesus living in submission to the Father pleased the Father. See, Jesus regularly, he went away to pray for the Father, or to pray to the Father, excuse me. He would come down after those all-night prayer sessions, if you notice as you read through the gospel, and he would make big decisions. He would go along in solitude, he'd pray, and he'd come away from that time, and decisions would be made. Things like who the disciples would be flew um, out of that. Where they would go next. How they would enter, how Jesus would enter into his suffering. All of these things happening through listening to the Father, all through hearing from and obeying the Father. The ultimate picture of submission. What Jesus could have done, what he might have done, all of these things in submission to the Father, and so too must we. We submit to the Father. We are also called to submit to one another within the body. And that's what membership is. It's me making covenant with you and you making covenant with me. Let's help each other walk this road of following Christ by encouraging each other, by speaking the truth and love to each other, and humbling ourselves enough to receive counsel from one another. We talked about that in our membership class yesterday. And we all put ourselves under that authority of each other to submit to one another. And so I, I do it as well. I'm, I'm the pastor of the church, the one pastor we have at this current time, but I put myself in that same position as well. You know, if, and, and the example I gave yesterday, if you hear me getting prideful, if I start kind of talking or acting prideful, which is a very real possibility for someone like me, then I would expect that you would call me on that and that you would reprimand me and discipline me for that. I should be. And I place myself under your authority to do so. And we all need one another in this because if we allow our lives to go by unchecked with no submission, with no authority in our lives, then where does that leave us? But in order to do that for someone else, we have to be willing to hear that ourselves. We need to be willing to accept that before we would ever say that, if that makes sense. That's an important thing for us to do together, and that's why we want to build relationships together. That's why we want to do discipleship and life groups and fellowship and times to be together where we can build relationships, where we can truly and honestly speak the truth and love into one another's lives. That's what submission, the kind of submission that we're being called to here in this verse that is done out of reverence for Christ. That's a picture of the church, and that's what this verse instructs us to do. But who should I listen to, and who do I humble myself to? See, the person who, we talked about this before, is it, is it the person who would just come to church on special holidays? Like, who are these people? Because it's significant. If I'm going to put myself under someone's authority, who is that person? Is it the person who comes once a month when it fits their schedule? Is it the person who slips into the back most Sundays but never gets involved beyond that? Like, I don't know. That's hard to say. This is a really practical question because it has eternal consequences, and I don't want to trust my life into just anyone's hands. We want to know one another. 
Who should I trust my life to? I certainly know that I trust my life to the other members, as Ephesians calls them, or the body, or the bride, because we've agreed together to say, yes, this is important, this is significant, I will do that for you and do it for me. This is what it means to be a member, as Ephesians calls it, and it's a beautiful thing. It's a trustworthy thing. It's something that we trust each other with our spiritual life, and we are called to do that as the body of Christ, as the family of God. I place myself under your authority, and you place yourself under my authority. We submit to one another. It's a beautiful thing, and it is a mark of those who are filled with the Holy Spirit. That kind of humility, it takes humility, and it takes this Holy Spirit at work within us to produce that. So then, on this wonderful Baptism Sunday, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You will awaken by maximizing the time that God has given you, literally redeeming the time that you have by being filled with the Holy Spirit, by singing praise to one another, and by always giving thanks for all things in all circumstances, and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is your path to true and meaningful life. Let's pray. Father God, these are deep truths that you are calling us uh, to here. They're not easy things. They're simple to understand in one regard, but they're not easy to live out, and we need one another. And we need Jesus. We need a Savior who is able to have gone before us and to have done these things and to have modeled these things, and that is exactly what we have in the gospel. And so we don't do these things because they're moral platitudes, but we do them because you have done them for us, and it becomes our joy and privilege to do them with one another. And so, Father, I pray that you would guide us in this, in making the most of our time, in being people of thankfulness, in being those who would be willing to submit to one another for the benefit of our very souls. We do this out of reverence for Jesus Christ. So may we be faithful in this area to wake up to this true reality that is around us, the reality that is able to provide us with everything that we are looking for. We have been reminded of that. We look for it in many illegitimate ways. The example used in our text this morning is through uh, being drunk, but there's many other ways as well that we look to finding these things. But we thank you that we have them in Jesus Christ through the filling of the Holy Spirit. May we experience that and live that out faithfully in the week that you will give us that lies before us. We don't know what our days might be. We don't know how, what our time might be but we want to use it for the benefit of your kingdom and to maximize each and every second that you bless us with. Every breath that we take is a gift from you and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.